All right, so we are live today with Dr. Jeff Zwierink. He is an astrophysicist and a research scholar at Reason to Believe. He earned his PhD in astrophysics from Iowa State University and his writing and speaking encourage people to consider the connections between scripture's truth and scientific evidence. He's the author of Is There Life Out There? Who's Afraid of the Multiverse? and co-author of Impact of event series. He's also a project scientist at UCLA. He works at Reasons to Believe, as I said before, and he is with us today live. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Zwierink. Glad to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. Sweet. So, I mean, I guess we'll just jump into it. So my first question for you is maybe you could give a little bit of like a short testimony, maybe about how you came to Christ, what you were passionate about and like things like that, you know? Fair enough. Yeah. So uh, if I, uh, there are two memories I have from very early in my life. Uh, you know, I think they say you can't remember stuff before about three or four years old. And both of these are in that class. And one of them is sitting at the top of the stairs in the duplex that my parents lived in or where we lived. And my dad was downstairs. He's a chemistry professor and he's downstairs giving a chemistry demonstration to a group that my older brother was involved with. And I just remember being fascinated because this is, you know, drop uh, balls in liquid nitrogen, throw them on the wall and they shatter and you mix chemicals and they make cool noise and weird smells or funky things afterwards. And I uh, just have been fascinated with science for as long as I can remember because it helps you understand how things work. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I do those demonstrations. I love watching them. That's part of what got me interested in sciences. Uh, the other memory I have was not too long after that of watching my parents be baptized in the 102 River outside St. Joseph, Missouri, where I grew up. And uh, just their uh, conversion to Christianity and belief in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord really influenced the way we lived. And so I was taught Christianity from a pretty young age. And myself uh, was in an Awana program in my fifth grade year and recognized that I needed to trust Christ to pay for my sins. So I did that that night and kind of through fits and spurts as grew. And uh, uh, one time that was, or a period of time that was very influential in my Christian walk was uh, after my senior year of high school, I went on a summer mission trip to go over to Europe to do evangelism. And uh, if I'm honest, I went over there to go to Europe because I like to travel. But in the process of doing that, really just began studying the Bible and learning how to pray and wanting to tell others about who God is and what Jesus has done. And uh, ran across a number of people because everybody on this trip was teenagers and uh, realized that there's just a whole bunch of people who knew what they wanted to do. And so I kind of think, you know, I want to be a scientist, but I'm not sure what God has for me with that. And so I uh, went into got a bachelor's in uh, physics and then I got a PhD in astrophysics. But part of the change there was uh, running across someone who was a scientist who was a Christian who was talking about how science and the Christian faith work together. I thought that's something that would be cool to do. So I kind of uh, picked up the astrophysics or picked up an astronomy minor and went into astrophysics because that's where science and faith seem to intersect a little bit more. And just have been doing uh, uh, scientific research and working at developing apologetic materials to help people see that science and Christianity aren't enemies, they're actually allies. And so that's kind of a little bit of how I've gotten to where I am right now. Yeah, definitely. So you're in a position as a scientist where I think a lot of atheist skeptics will say, hey, you know, you look at it and scientists are the smartest people you could say in the field of does God exist? And most scientists that they would claim don't believe that God exists. So why do you believe that God exists? Well, so th there's kind of a number of things with that. I know a lot of scientists would like to claim that they're the smartest. And being a scientist, I, I'm in that class who, you know, I mean, scientists are not dumb people. I mean, they, they, you do have to, you got quite a bit of education and, you know, they're a bright group of folks. Um, but there's this prevailing idea that, um, you know, if you study science, that just kind of gets rid of faith in God and uh, the more you study, the more that shows that Christianity is not correct. And the, the data really just shows that's not true. I mean, there are historical studies of scientists and asking the question of what their spiritual beliefs are. And kind of throughout the 1900s and even into the early 2000, or 2000s, um, the number of scientists, you know, physics, chemistry, biology, who th think that there's some sort of supernatural has really l remained largely unchanged. 
Um, and you know, the, you know, you look at the Nobel prizes that, uh, as of right now, still the vast majority of those were Christians who had a, a strong spiritual conviction. You know, Isaac Newton. Uh, you know, that you just you look at these people who founded the scientific enterprise, and they're kind of the who's who of scientists, if you will. And a lot of them had a very strong Christian faith, and so. There's part of that that there's this perception that studying scientists, studying science is antithetical to Christianity, and it really just <clears throat> it isn't the case. Now there are scientists who will paint Christianity in a very negative light to dismiss them, and quite honestly, there are Christians who will paint science in a very negative light to dismiss them. But what I have found is that. Um, Christianity is really a pursuit of the truth, that if God exists and Christ came and died on the cross for our sins, that that's true. We ought to believe that and respond to that. Well, science is studying, trying to figure out what's true in the world. How does the world work? What's true there? And so I find Christianity and science actually kind of go hand in hand in a pursuit of truth, and I find they work very well together. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you completely. So the meat of what I wanted us to talk about is your view on Genesis. Cause I know this is a debate that like a lot of Christians will have, like you'll have people that on the young earth camp, that will say, Hey, you know, that as an old earth, you're really just trying to fit science into the Bible. The Bible preaches six day creation, mm -hmm. all these things. We'll get into all these things. So briefly, before we get into all those claims, maybe you could give a brief overview of your view on Genesis, what it's actually saying things about like, just maybe like, you know, like Genesis one through 12, a quick, one, two minute summary of what you right. believe. You know, so I, I, I am very much in the camp that the, the Bible is the inerrant inspired word of God, that what it speaks to, it speaks with truth and authority. And so in Genesis one through 12, you know, that, that those are historic, it's a historical account of what happened. Um, you know, some kind of particularly salient points are that, uh, you know, in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that that word for created has this connotation of God bringing the universe into existence, that the universe has a beginning to it, um, which is fascinating when we look at scientifically how the how scientists have viewed, viewed that uh, the the origins of the universe is that there's a strong evidence that, or you could make a strong case that the best scientific evidence over the last hundred years points to the universe having a beginning. That, uh, you know, if you if you look at that, that you've got Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, 2 now shifts the frame of reference to the surface of the earth. The spirit or, and the, uh, the spirit was hovering over the surface of the earth or sorry. And the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. That the early stages of the earth, it was formless and void, hostile to life that there was water covering the planet, that there was darkness on the planet, and that matches what we see scientifically. Then you see days one through six of God transforming this vo formless and void, hostile to life world into an environment that not only is conducive to life, but is teeming with an abundant, diverse array of life. And so you've got, uh, you know, God transforming the atmosphere so that the light from the sun reaches the surface of the earth. On day one, you've got the establishment of the waters above and the waters below. There's some sort of water cycle that's going on on day two. You've got the formation of continents on day three. There's some introduction of some land plants, if you will. Um, day four, you have the clearing of the atmosphere to see the heavens uh, for the, you know, so that you can see the, the greater and the lesser light for signs and seasons and years. Um, you've got day five where God introduces creatures in the oceans. You got day six where God introduces creatures on the land, ultimately culminating in the creation of humanity. Uh, interesting, same word for, and God created uh, male and female is the same word in the beginning God created. And so, God's bringing something new into existence. And so, uh, you know, you, we could, I, I think those, those days as they're being described are longer periods of time that that's the best way to grammatically interpret those that reconciles both what we see in scripture, what we see in God's creation, and that taken together as a whole, uh, you know, that we could go into the other chapters of Genesis 2 there, but taking Genesis 1 and 2 into, a, into, a, into, into account, that they actually provide an account of 
the history of the universe and Earth in the details that it provides that matches what we find in the scientific record, which is a confirmation that they're both revealed or, or that the same sort or the same person is the source of both of those accounts, what we see in creation and what we see in the Bible. Yeah, I agree with you there. So my first question in terms of the science, I guess you could say if you get into it, is why do you believe the Earth is old, I guess you could say, or because I mean, just the young Earth, the older Earth thing. So why would you say the Earth is old? So there's a number of, uh, you know, if we're looking at it from the scientific perspective, um, I would say there's a number of things that kind of give evidence of that. Uh, among other things are when you look at the elements that are present on Earth, um, there are certain elements that have very long, that they decay, and they decay with a very predictable rate with very long half-lives. Um, there's actually an element on the periodic table. Um, it's either 42 or 43. I'm drawing a blank on that. But it's technetium, which we can synthesize in our particle accelerators. We can measure its half-life. It has a half-life more than a million years. And there's none of it, detect there's none detectable on the surface of the Earth. You know, so now it's possible that God made a universe where there's this particular element and there's just none of it on the earth. We do measure it out in space in various instances, but there's, it's possible that God just made a, an earth where there's none of this around. But I think more likely is that uh, the technetium that was there in the early periods of the earth has all just decayed away into something else. And so there's also numerous other things where we can go radioactively date numerous things and we get ages that are well beyond a few thousand years. We get ages that are millions and billions of years old. Um, you know, when you look at the processes that form the earth, you know, the processes of glaciers eroding valleys of, of uh, or crust or plate tectonics building mountains, we can know the time scales on those. And those are, again, far longer than thousands of years. Um, you know, they're actually millions and billions of years. And when you look at the picture that the scientists have put together of when did things happen, it makes a nice coherent picture. And so those are some of the scientific reasons why I think the earth is more than a few thousand years old. It's actually four and a half billion years old, like the scientists say. Yeah, definitely. So how would you respond to a young earther's claim that like radiometric dating, like those dating processes where we look at these materials, that they it doesn't work or maybe that it's flawed? Because I know that they'll use an example. I think it's Mount St. Helens where you can like date those things and they'll look like they're millions of years old, but they're actually only, you know, like a couple of decades. So the, the kind of there's two two things that I would acknowledge there. One is that radiometric dating isn't a, oh, let's just sit down, do the dating, and you get the right answer every time. It's a science of how to do that. And scientists have spent a long time trying to figure out how do we do this reliably so that we get accurate results out. And, um, you know, there's ways of calibrating the dating. There's ways of checking it with other techniques. So it's not just, oh, I've got a radiometric date, therefore that's got to be the age. Um, you also have to understand there are certain kinds of things you can date and certain things you can't. I mean, you cannot use carbon dating to date rocks because there's no carbon in rocks that's worth that you can date. And rocks do not absorb carbon-14 and carbon-12 from the atmosphere, which is what allows you to use radiocarbon dating. So that's that, that leads to two things. One is that there's instances where you could apply radioactive or radiometric dating and you're going to get wrong results because you're not understanding how the process works. So, for example, if you're using something that measures half-lives in the millions of years, so if you're using an isotope that has a half-life of a million years, if you try and date something that is a few thousand years old using that technique, you're going to get the wrong answer because your ruler isn't the right length. You know, if I use a meter stick to measure the width of a human hair, I'm going to get wrong answers because there's the errors are going to be way too large. Um, but if I use a ruler or if I use a meter stick to measure the pebbles out in my yard, I'm going to do pretty well because it's the right length for that. So some of those dating techniques are using radioactive isotopes, which have really long half-lives to measure things that are really short, you're bound to get the wrong answer doing that. Or the conditions that allow the radioactive dating process to work properly aren't met. And so without looking at, I mean, with every 
example where you say that, I would have to go look and say, okay, what's going on here? And would I trust this or not? Um, but what I will also say is that there's a lot of things that while this technique works very well in general, because if you look at all the different dates out there, there's a remarkable harmony amongst the dates. So you've got different radioactive isotopes that you can use to date the same thing, and you end up getting results that often match very well. And so you've got two different techniques that give the same answer. That gives you confidence that that's probably the right answer. But that doesn't mean it's always going to work every time and give you the right answer. And so the fact that you can point out some places where it gives you funky answers is a sign that says, all right, you know, we need to be careful. And some of those, you know, where they give funky answers or answers that are unexpected re require more attention to say, okay, what's really going on here? Is this really saying that the earth is young or is it more likely saying that we've tried to apply the technique and we've done it incorrectly? To me, the latter seems like a far more likely answer. Yeah, definitely. That's a great explanation of all that. So what would you say to a young earther that would claim that you're just trying to fit science or secular science, I guess you could say, into the Bible? I would say they don't understand what I'm trying to do very well, because what I am trying to do is ascertain what is the truth. You know, uh, numerous times throughout scripture that God is a God of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, you know. Um, God is a God of truth. And so the reason why I think Christianity is, or I'm, I'm Christian is because I think the Bible reveals the truth of who God is, who Christ is, who I am and how I relate to God. And so I put my faith in that truth. <clears throat> As I'm studying creation, God, the Bible tells us that God's revealed himself in creation. But commensurate with that is that if I trust that the Bible says there's this city named Jericho, then I would expect that city to actually exist somewhere that if I had the tools, I ought to be able to measure it. If I find, if I could conclusively show that Jericho didn't exist, that would cast doubt on the truth of Christianity, the truth of what scripture says. And so similarly, when I go look at creation, God has revealed himself reliably. I would expect to be able to measure things about who he is and how he sustains and how God interacts with creation. Or as I make measurements of creation, I get information about who God is and how he interacts with creation. And so I'm not saying, well, let's just go look at the science and now I've got to reinterpret the Bible to make sense of it. That's not the way I look at it at all. The Bible reveals truth. Creation reveals truth. As we study the Bible, we have to interpret the words, the, the the text there, if you will. And it's possible that I can misinterpret and get the wrong interpretation. Similarly, when I look at creation, I'm trying to understand how it works. I'm trying to interpret the data, if you will. And it's possible for me to misinterpret. My conviction is this, that if God's the author of, script, or author of creation and the inspiration for scripture, and I'm convinced he is, that when I properly interpret scripture and when I properly interpret creation, they're going to say the same thing. So where the Bible, if I take those first 11 books of Genesis as historical, then I would expect what it says matches what I'm going to find when I go look at creation. And if it doesn't, it means that I've misinterpreted one or the other or both. It does not mean that, well, I found this scientifically, therefore I get to go change what the Bible's saying. It I means I got to go back and re-examine my interpretation and make sure I'm doing that well. And similarly, where the Bible seems to say something that contradicts what I find in science, it doesn't mean I get to throw out the data from science. It means that I need to go back and re-examine my interpretation of creation. Or it may mean that I've gotten both interpretations wrong. But, it, but truth the truth revealed through scripture and the truth revealed through creation, when we've properly understood, interpreted them, they're going to agree, or that's a sign that God is not who he claimed to be. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it all there. Man, I'm just trying, I'm just trying to follow along because you have some really great stuff here. So I've kind of like, you know, I'm like, yeah, that's really good. And I have nothing else to add. It's really, <laughs> you got really great stuff here. So I'll just well, keep moving on here. Okay. So this is kind of a similar question, but kind of in reverse. So how would you respond to an atheist that would say that you're just trying to fit the Bible into modern science? Well, again, what I would say is just the same thing. It's like, you know, the, what, I, if, if I'm, 
if the atheist is honest, and I think a lot of them are, um, then they're actually what why they believe what science has to say is they because they think that science is revealing the truth about how the world works. And so what I'm saying is I, I don't get to go over here and just say, well, the Bible says this, so therefore I've got to push science together. What I'm trying to do is say, I think science gives us tools to understand the truth of how the world works. I think scripture uh, or you know, theology gives us tools to understand the truth revealed through scripture. And what I want to do is say, do if, if that's correct, then those ought to agree and integrate well. And I would say this, this, this may sound like a bold and almost heretical statement, is that if, I, if you could show a genuine place where what the scripture said and what was, what, how creation worked were genuinely incommensurate, that you could not reconcile them, that would be an indication that the God of the Bible is not, is not, is not the truth. Because if God is truth, that truth is going, one aspect of truth is it is coherent, that it agrees with itself. It's not true here and not true over there. Truth is truth. And so if we find that this, the God of the Bible has somehow revealed himself in contradictory ways, that would be a problem, but I've never found that. And so to the scientist who says, oh, you're just trying to muscle your your theology into the science. I'm like, well, no, you can go look at the scientific work I've done and you'll find I do good science. But I also think that there's science isn't the only way to understand truth. And so if I think this is true in the same way, if what science says says, yeah, Newton's laws describe how creation works, then I need to put my confidence in that or my faith, if you will. If I find that the Bible reveals truth about creation and how things work, I want to put my faith in that truth as well. So I'm about trying to understand the truth and then putting my faith in that. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. So I want to talk a little bit about the days here, the creation days of Genesis, because sure. I know there's a lot of people that will say if you read those, you just get six literal days. It makes sense, you know, that there was traces and then you trace it down to the 6,000 year earth. So why do you say that those days aren't literal days? So, well, I, I guess I don't like that use of the term, not literal days. I say they're not mm -hmm. 24 hour days because the okay. question is given the genre of Genesis, liter literally, what is the best way to interpret those? Literal, you know, it has this concept of literarily, what does it mean? And so the question is, what's the best interpretation of day in Genesis 1? Well, one thing that is true is that every Hebrew, you know, or sorry, when you look at biblical Hebrew, what is true of biblical Hebrew is that there are very few words in biblical Hebrew. There's about eight, you know, you go take your Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. There are about eight, a little over 8,000 entries in there. Most of those, about 5,000 of them are proper names. So you've got about 3,000 Hebrew words to communicate the breadth of ideas being talked about in the Old Testament. When you compare that to the English language, English has in the millions. So you're, you're stuck with one of two ways to look at that, or at least one of two ways, is that either the Bible, because it's got such a small vocabulary, is simple in what it's communicating, or words have more words have multiple meanings, and that's where you get the sophistication and the complexity. And I take the latter view, and and it's true. You go look in your Hebrew lexicons and ask, "What does Yom, the Hebrew word for day, mean?" And there are at least three or four different definitions of Yom. It could mean the twenty, or you could mean a twenty-four hour day. It could mean the daylight portion of the day. It could mean um, uh, the uh, the like the day of David, a period of time, or it could mean a long but well or but definite period of time. And so now you ask the question in Genesis 1, what's the proper, in, in the earliest chapters of Genesis, what's the proper interpretation? Well, when you look through just Genesis 1 up through Genesis 2 4, you find that it's used to refer to the daylight portion of the day because on day one, and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So it's using, referring to the daylight portion of the day. You also have in Genesis 2, 4, where day, that word yom, refers to the entire creation week. Now, usually that's translated as these are the generations or this is the account, but it's still that Hebrew word yom referring to the entirety of the creation week. 
and you have uh, on day four where, and you have uh, you know the the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern or the lesser light to govern the night, and for signs and seasons, you know where you got now. There's also a reference to a 24-hour day in there. So you've got all three usages in Genesis one. The question is, when you're looking at and there was day one and the second day and the third day and the fourth day, or, uh, which is the proper usage there? Now, what as I look throughout Christian history, or not not history, but how Christians throughout history, historic Christianity has looked at the usage of the word day there or of Yom, what you find is that Christians say, well, it could be a 24-hour day. And this is how that fits within a high view of scripture. Or it could be that those are longer periods of time, that they're ages. That fits within a high view of scripture. Or it could be that they are analogies, that they're God's days and ref- or, you know, or they're analogous to our days. So they're like and unlike our days, which could leave itself to an op- or a longer view of time. The, so... The, the point just simply being this, that when you look at Christians who hold scripture in high regard, who uni, uni, univocally agree on who God is and his triune nature and Jesus being the second person of the Godhead, took on a, uh, on a, on a, as a divine and a human nature, coexisting, not, not mixed, you know, all the other things that if you change that, you, you change historic Christianity. They agree on all of those things. They come down and they say, you know what? There's a range of interpretations of what could be going on here on how long those days are. So now that to me says, that's a good place now to go look and say, all right, well, we can actually go study those, those days. There's God's left a record in creation. And what does it say? And when you try then to say, all right, given what we know in creation, what's the best way to integrate all those? The best way as I've looked at it is that those are much longer than 24 hour days. Now, does that mean it's got to be that or that I've got the final answer? No, I don't think that's the truth or I don't think that's the case. But what it does say is that the data to this point argues that the best interpretation is that the one that holds scripture in highest regard and God's revelation and creation in highest regard is that those are longer than 24 hour days. Yeah, 100%. So how would you response to like, a, I'll give a counterpoint here. This is one that I hear a lot when I'm researching these two sides, right? I mean, there's more than two sides, but you know, younger, mm-hmm. older, that type of thing. So a lot of the time I'll hear someone from a younger side say that the Bible says in those creation days that there was evening and then there was morning. So that seems mm-hmm. to suggest that it was a literal day. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, again, I think that that's a piece of evidence that I would agree, at least initially, argues that, that that fits more comfortably in a 24-hour day view. But you also have to ask the question, I, I don't get to look at just one piece of evidence. I got to look at all the evidence. And so, um, you know, for example, if it's an analogical day, then using the term evening and morning makes perfect sense there because that's what that's the analogy would still hold. So simply because there's morning and evening there doesn't mandate that those are 24-hour days. What it says is, this is a piece of data that I have to integrate and look at. You know, you also, again, look at the words for evening and morning. Um, and they also have this connotation of beginning and ending. Uh, you know, that, that's another interpretation of them. So, you know, I, I, if I'm just straight out honest, I look at that and say on first glance, okay, evening and morning, that looks like those are 24-hour days. But again, as I studied, it's like, okay, it doesn't mandate that I do that. And if those are 24-hour days, now I really have to work at other passages in Scripture that I find harder to reconcile with 24-hour days. But also have to try and understand how does all of this scientific record, which seems very reliable at this point, which says that the earth is much older, how does that integrate? So I have to integrate all of the data. And so while that one piece of data may fit better over here, when I look at all of it, the best explanation that that accounts for all of that data the easiest is that it's older than 24 hours. Yeah, it's a great explanation. So I want to talk a little bit about the uh, pain before fall. So I'm guessing actually, believe, if I could, yeah. I, th- there was something else I want to comment in there is that, yeah, go for um, it. you know, if those are 24 hour days, then all day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, and day six, and day seven are all 24 hour days. Now there's an interesting thing to, 
to point out because you know I kind of gave some well does does the Bible mandate that those are 24-hour days and I didn't really give any positive evidence of why I think they're longer than 24-hour days except for some scientific stuff I think there are biblical reasons to think they're longer than 24-hour days and one is by looking at what <clears throat> what the Bible says about the seventh day because on the seventh day God rested but there's no evening and morning there's no closing out of that day if you will so mm -hmm. the you know if if the first six are closed out, the, the kind of the implication of the seventh one not having that is that it's still ongoing. Well, we know that's been much more than 24 hours since the end of the sixth day. But even more than that, when you go look in the Psalms, I do believe it's Psalm 95, talks about, God is talking and saying that he wants, wants the Israelites to enter into his rest. And he uses that language of what's going on in the seventh day. And so the Israelites had the capacity to enter into God's rest, that seventh, the rest on the seventh day. And then you go into Hebrews, which also anchors that, that the Christian now can enter into God's rest. And theologically speaking, where we're resting from our work to earn our way to God, we are just in God's presence. We no longer have to work. We're resting, if you will. That Hebrews, uh, I want to say it's four, it may be 11, Hebrews ties itself back to that passage in Psalm, which is tying itself to Genesis 1, where it's talking about the seventh creation day, indicating that that creation day is still ongoing. And so even theologically speaking, just speak, just staying within the confines of Scripture, I think there's strong arguments you can make that those are more than 24-hour days, that they're much longer periods of time. Yeah, definitely. So it's, a great, it's great that there's biblical and uh grammatical but regardless oh man my words are kind of messed up today because i'm just like i'm just processing all this and i'm just like wow this is really good stuff so i'm not really thinking about what i'm going to say so my next question for you is so i want to talk a little bit about death before the fall because i'm mm -hmm. guessing that you believe that there was death before the fall of man correct death in the animal kingdom not in humanity okay so in genesis God calls creation good, and then in mm -hmm. 131, he calls it very good. So right. how could creation be very good if there was death even in animals before even the fall of man? So why, well, there, there's an, in, there's an in, assumption in that that's uh, implicit and not explicitly stated is that death is necessarily bad. Um, you know, and so, for example, predation has got to be bad, right? If that's the case, because if animals are eating other animals, that can't possibly be good. Except when you go look in the Psalms, you've got God, the psalmist is praising God because the lions are roaring about for their prey and God is providing the prey for the lion. So if this is bad, why is God praised for it? So my, my, my point is kind of twofold. One is that we assume that death is bad. But if this is, a, if this is a temporary creation, which I believe God created this universe, knowing that humanity was going to fall, that this was never our final home, that this was temporary, death is going to be a part of temporary things. It's not going to be part of the new creation. That's a, that's a different question. But the fact that God uses death to accomplish his purposes and he calls it good, that doesn't, that's not a problem. God gets to decide whether that's good or bad. I don't get to whether I like it or not. And so the fact that the psalmist and you got people throughout, throughout the scriptures praising God for, uh, you know, predation and, and, you know, kind of from a scientific perspective, predation is actually part of how the ecology works properly. Uh, you can do these studies where predators have been removed from populations and the populations, while they initially grow, they actually become less healthy. So the predators are actually, I would argue, part of how God keeps the the creation in, in proper working order, if you will, so that it does what it's intended to do. Um, but the other thing to recognize is that nowhere through nowhere through Scripture does it ever say that animals died before humanity sinned, and so it's again I think it's it's a reasonable thing to think, but there's nothing where Scripture mandates it, and in fact, because God is being praised for providing animal or providing for the lion going after its prey, I think we need to reevaluate and look at this from God's perspective and get his view on it than rather looking at it from my view or our view, which says, ooh, animal death can't possibly be good. 
Yeah, definitely. So you talked a little about there was no human death before the fall. So in your view, who are Adam and Eve? Are they the first humans? Are they the first of evolutionary descendants? Um, like, so yeah, who are Adam and Eve in your view? So in my view, and uh, you know, I will say this question has a lot more subtlety and complexity uh, than we're probably going to address today. But I do think yeah, in my view, I think if Adam and Eve are not historical people, that's one of those places where you're impinging on the the what historic Christianity has held, because um, uh, you know Paul talked like Adam and Eve were historical people, and Jesus talked like Adam and Eve were historical people, and so if they weren't. That's 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 going to be problematic. And so I think Adam and Eve were definitely historical people. I think they were the progenitors of the human race, that they were the first two people that God created and all humanity descends from them. And I think, you know, biblically, there's good support for that. I think there's even good scientific support for that idea. Um, and that in the Garden of Eden, had they, <coughs> excuse me, had they not fallen and eaten the fruit and, and chosen to disobey God, humanity would have never perished. That's my yeah. position. Yeah, definitely. So would you say that they came from evolutionary descent or were they created in like the whole human uh, macroevolution theories kind of didn't wrong, wrong, didn't happen? I don't know your view on that. I, my, my position, and, and again, you know, I'm, I'm an astrophysicist who've not studied the evolution and the biology and everything really well, but I do talk to people who study this. And my position is that... Uh, you know, from a, a theological perspective or a scriptural perspective, God created the universe, brought it into existence out of nothing, that that same term is applied to humanity, that God intervened to bring about humanity. We're not just the latest process or the latest, uh, you know, the end product of a whole bunch of natural processes, that God intervened to bring about humanity. And specifically, the thing that distinguishes humanity from every other creature is that we're the only beings made in the image of God. And so I think there's a, a physical and a non-physical component to humanity. Um, and so no amount of evolution is going to bring about a non-physical component to humanity. Uh, so I think at the very minimum, God intervened in doing that. But I, I if you were to press me on, I think God, I think God intervened to, you know, he did some fashioning of the bodies, but certainly introduced the, the spiritual component, his image into us. Um, what I don't know, because I don't think the Bible is abundantly clear on that, and I don't know where the science is going to pan out, is I am not sure whether God maybe used some process of evolution, had some population of hominids, took two out and said, okay, you're Adam and Eve. And that I, I'm not sure how all that played out. Um, but I do know this, that, or I will say this, I think it's very clear that God intervened to make humanity. We're not just the end product of a bunch of natural processes, that there's definite intervention that happened. Yeah, I And, and, and Adam and Eve are historical, that you know, they're not just some metaphor, or some allegorical description of why humanity's got these problems. Yeah, I definitely, I agree with you on that point with like, cause you know, people like Jesus mentioning them, that's a pretty, yeah. Good tell they're historical. So I want to jump now to the flood because this is another big debate topic. So I I believe it reasons to believe in that you personally you hold a partial Earth flood view. Is that correct? Yes, and and so I'm gonna, I'm going to preface our entire discussion is everything I've said up to this point. Um, I, I am aware of the subtleties of how different people look and you know what I'm stating, I'm pretty confident about. When we get into the flood, I, I just personally, I've not invested the time to theologically wade through all the different discussions there. And so where I am confident that I have landed on a position that's theologically and scientifically sound in everything we've talked about so far, um, the flood, I think, is a more challenging topic. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll preface everything I say that I'm going to state a position. I think it's a good position, but I think there's a lot of subtleties and a lot of sophistication and a lot of nuance that needs to be worked out still. So yeah, go ahead definitely. and ask your question again. So I was going to ask you, maybe if you could give a brief overview of your beliefs on the partial flood theory, what that is, um, what happened in the flood, basically according to your theory, you know, things like mm -hmm. that. So I, I, I think that the flood is 
uh, local in that the floodwaters did not cover the entire earth. It's universal in that it judged all of humanity. So whatever the region of the flood was, and I think the flood was massive in extent. This isn't just, you know, we've had floods around the United States over the last few years. It's not one of those kinds of floods. This is like flooding the whole Mediterranean region, you know, uh, you know uh, Mesopotamian basin type thing. You know, this is a mammoth flood in that sense. Um, but nonetheless, it didn't flood Antarctica or, you know, North America in that sense, but that it was a flood that judged all of humanity. So humanity had not extended beyond that region. And so that whole region being flooded actually wiped out all of humanity, except for Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives. So what about, uh, so when, when would you date this flood then, according to your estimates, like how long ago would you say it happened? You know, it's it'd have to be something on the order of 50,000 or more years ago because you start having people migrating out of uh, the Europe, you know, Mesopotamia region after that. And so for that position to be correct, the flood would have to predate that. And so you're going to get on the order of 50, 60, 70,000 years ago. Okay. You know, I can see yeah. why there there's obviously some tension that th putting a date like that creates. There's some scientific tension as well as some theological tension. Yeah, definitely. So what would you say, because I believe in the Bible, it does, I mean, at least at the surface, it says that two of every animal went onto mm -hmm. the ark. So right. do you believe that's true? I believe two of every animal that humanity interacted with were on the ark. Yes. I don't believe that humanity had interacted with polar bears, so I don't think there were two polar bears on the ark. Okay. Um, but in, in that sense, they, they weren't just, the, but the pol the if you know, I forget whether polar bears live in the north up towards the North Pole, if where polar bears lived wasn't flooded, so you didn't need to have two polar bears on the ark. But again, all of humanity was judged, so every animal that humanity had interacted with bore the consequences of human sin, and so they were judged. Okay, yeah. So, what about this? Is another counterpoint that I think you'd see a lot. What about the idea that, that in the text it says it talks about how the flood covered the highest peak? Peak, I believe it says like by like 20 feet or something like that too. So how right. would you look at a text like that? Uh, so it, kind of in the same way I look at the, or, you know, the count in Genesis one is you got to ask from what perspective or, or is this being evaluated? I mean, you know, there's, you know, obviously scripture is divinely inspired, but it's authored by humans. And so, um, you know, from what perspective, I think, you know, from the perspective of Noah and his family, which would be the 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 logical authors or the the people who are describing you know or telling the story if you will, then uh, there was no land visible. It the whole land was covered to 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 a great depth because they could not see anything. Um, now, kind of one counterpoint or you know one thing I would argue that I think makes that a reasonable position is that uh, you know even from the ark they're going to be up a couple hundred feet tops you know i mean that ark's not going to be that tall um and so you you know for that for you to be that high and to be able to look out and see nothing but water that's a pretty massive flood i mean you're you're talking about a pretty big region that's flooded there um but what it also says in scripture was uh you know after the flood had judged humanity and noah had been in the ark with his family for a while the, a wind came and the waters retreated to where they came from. And so this is a place where I think science can weigh in and we can ask the question, how much water is there on the earth? And is there enough water on the earth to flood the entire earth? And the answer to that is no. You know, you if I think if you were to make everything on the earth smooth to like 400 feet high or something like that, then there's enough water to cover the entire earth. But, um, you know, you've got mountains right at the end of the flood. And so when did all, you know, if, you start, if you're starting to say it's that smooth, one, a cue ball is not that smooth. So having something that smooth is really remarkable. But two, you know, you, you've, got, you've got mountains in there and how could those mountains not be visible if everything was flooded? And so there are some other inconsistencies there. Again, I guess, again, when I look at it all, the, the explanation that seems to fit best is that there was a, a very massive flood you know, a, a once in a once in a humanity type flood that judged all of humanity, but it didn't cover the entire earth. Okay, yeah. So I mean, I don't want to go too deep into that. That's a great, I think, covering that. You do, you do, you know a lot about it for saying that you're not super well researched. It, so it's well, pretty... so so there's 
the, the I mean, that's the part that I can state a little bit more confidently. The question you now start getting into is, you know, if if you're going to push that back to a hundred, you know, fifty thousand years, you know, how do you deal with the genealogies? Because not too long after the flood, you've got Abraham, and so how do you have ten, fifteen thousand, or you know, that much, you know, forty, fifty thousand years between the flood and Abraham? And the description of some of the tools look more Neolithic, which is more recent. But then if you're going to go, you know, within the past four or 5,000 years, you've got humanity having migrated over the earth. And so how could it judge all of humanity? So there are a lot of things that are, I don't have answers to all of those things. So uh, I don't know how all of that is, all that fits together in a coherent fashion. Although I think I'm confident we'll we'll figure it out, but I just don't know what the final answer is going to be on that. Yeah, definitely. That's funny because that just my next question for you is what about the genealogies and you have these exact years. So, I mean, if you don't have a super, if you haven't looked into this super or don't have an answer, that's completely okay. But what I'm curious what your thoughts are on those genealogies, especially in like in Genesis five, it talks about Adam, the father of mm -hmm. Cain or Abel and da 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 and right. all these years and things. So, if you so a lot of young earthers will use it to trace and say, hey, you know, we can trace it back to Adam, and it's about six thousand years. So right. how do you look at those genealogies and have these big um, time spaces in between them when they have certain years that are listed in the genealogies? Well, so I think the, the one of the key features of interpreting scripture is you've got, always got to understand the genre and understand how the genre works. So, for example, you know, my pastor is he's been he was preaching through uh, Luke and every time he got to the parable, you know, he would always make this comment that the lesson is in the twist. And so you're as you as you interpreted and read through, you were looking for the twist because that's what was important. That's where the lesson was. And so you didn't worry about, well, why did Jesus give 10 or five talents and only, to one person and only two to the other? That that wasn't the main point. The point was in the twist. Or, yeah, the lesson was in the twist. That's how, that's how you properly interpret parables. So the question is, how do you properly interpret genealogies? Well, you go look through, go look at what Christian or you know what people who study genealogies and, and especially in an ancient culture as opposed to a Western culture, genealogies primarily tell you who you belong to. So when you have the genealogy, say in Matthew, that chase Jesus genealogy goes through David and through Abraham to Adam, it says that Jesus belongs to the group that includes, it belongs to David and the group that David was a part of, and he belongs to that group that Abraham was a part of, and he belongs to the group that Abraham or that Adam was a part of. That's who Jesus represents. That's who, that's the group that he's a part of. Because if he were not a part of Adam, he could not die to pay for our sins. You know, so so that, that's what the genealogies are about. So that's first and foremost what genealogies are doing. Now you can ask the question, can we use the genealogies to put dates on things? Well, the, mo the moment you realize that genealogies are primarily about who you belong to, not when did they live, <coughs> you realize you got to be careful there. <coughs> Excuse me. And so in that context, I would raise two points that I think give pause to saying, okay, we can use this to calculate a date that's six to 10,000 years ago. First is that um, we know that there are gaps in the genealogies. And so the moment there are gaps, you cannot, you, you, you know that they're not primarily timekeeping devices because you don't leave gaps where you're trying to delineate a certain amount of time. And you can do that. Just go look at, I think it's Genesis 11 has a genealogy and Luke has a genealogy. There's one person in the Luke genealogy that's not in the Genesis genealogy. Now you could say, Canaan, okay, well, I huh? I said, yeah, Canaan, I believe. Yeah, Canaan, right. And so you could, you now you could say, well, that's just one person. That doesn't really change the time scale. Except that if this is a time scale, there's a whole block of time that you have no idea how much is there. And the fact that there's one gap leads the question of how do we know that everything is complete there? Again, if you're tracing who you belong to, I may say I belong to my dad and my grandfather and my great grandfather, my great, great, great. Or, you know, if I'm getting too long out there and if I've got a hundred generations, I may go say, you know what, Bill, he was 
the, he was the person that everybody knows. So I belong to, you know, I may go a couple generations and then skip four or five. And then, you know, I go back to Washington, you know, I'm going to put the people that, that, that trace the genealogy. I'm not concerned about getting every person in there. And so the question is how many gaps are in there? And I don't know how you would answer that question. I know you can't say there are no gaps, on the other hand, if you're getting to where, you know, you got factors of more than 10, you know, then, I, you know, where, where do you say that? So if you could trace the genealogies and say they go, well, maybe that's about 10,000 years. To me saying, okay, those genealogies may encompass a total of 100,000 years. Sorry, let me rephrase that. If you can say with no gaps, you get back six to 10,000 years. Well, then you say, okay, maybe a factor of 10 more may be reasonable, but I'm just pulling a number out of my hat there. I mean, I don't know what, what's reasonable and what's not there. All that, again, the, the point I just simply wanna make is the fact that there are gaps, and we see that as a ubiquitous feature of genealogies, means that we need to be very careful about making them timekeeping devices. And that's also amplified when you look at, you know, that where, you know, Abraham or Adam became the father of, you know, and you look at those timescales, that word for father and son is kind of ancestor descendant type terminology. It could use, mm -hmm. I mean, I am my, you know, my great grandfather became my father. That's that's the, the terminology that would be used there. And so again, just the fact that there are times put our ages and father-son relationships, that that's pushing the language more than it accommodates because we know some of those, you, again, where you're talking about Canaan, that same terminology is used, except that we know that it was his grandfather. You know, so yeah, 100%. all you have, you, I'm just saying you gotta be a little cautious there to say, okay, we can trace this back and this mandates that it's into the six, 10,000 year period. I think that's pushing the geolo genealogies beyond what they're intended for. Yeah, I agree with you completely here. I was thinking about this, it could be cool if, you know, Canaan was added, well not, at, obviously he's in the family line, but God inspired Luke to add Canaan so that we know that the genealogies weren't expected to be interpreted literally. It could be a cool theory, I it, guess. It, so, it would not at all surprise me that God's done that because I, I think what I, what I, I kind of, you know, you said you, we were talking a little earlier and you said you took some calculus in there. And, you know, one of the things I find interesting <laughs> is that, you know, when you're teaching a uh, seventh or eighth grader how to divide, you tell them, oh, you can't divide by zero, right? Because you don't know how to do it. You, know, you get you get a, an undefined answer. Well, calculus is all about dividing by zero. So it's not that you can't, it's that you have to do it properly. And so if, if a good teacher in there is going to say, you don't know how to divide by zero, or you don't get to divide by zero, you can't divide by zero. But a good teacher is going to do it in such a way that there's a clue that maybe there's a way to do it later. And so mm -hmm. you're, you're kind of what you're talking about, Canaan, wouldn't surprise me, God is a of all of you know of all the other things he is he's also a very adept teacher that he's put those things in there that allow us to know you know to, to get that insight that we need so yeah definitely so that's all the questions i have so thank you so much for coming on dr zwierink oh i can't say well, right. i've really enjoyed the conversation it's zach right <laughs> yeah zach yeah it was really awesome i had a great time so i'd encourage everyone to go check out dr zwierink stuff i have a link to his twitter and his blog i believe it is in the description so be sure to follow his stuff he has some great stuff yeah his, your organization reasons to believe you guys are doing some really awesome stuff so it's really cool to see good glad to enjoy enjoyed the conversation today yeah me too so if you liked our video in this podcast be sure to subscribe to us on youtube you can leave a like you can support us financially on patreon we're trying to reach a 500 a month fundraising goal you can follow us on social medias and i will see you guys next time so have a great night